0: Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's Third Act. Today, we have part two of our two-part series on venture investing. Erica Minahan, founder of 1000 Angels, continues her masterclass on the fundamentals of venture investing. This series covers the basics you need to know to build a solid portfolio as an angel investor. On today's episode, Erica talks about the different stages of investing, from seed to IPO, as well as how to conduct due diligence across those different stages. She explains how 1000 Angels comes up with valuations for companies and talks about the different instruments of investing, from safes to equity. Whether you're a founder seeking funding or an investor who wants to add early stage private equity to her portfolio, This informative podcast will get you up to speed on understanding the exciting opportunities in startup investing and how it can launch your own third act.
1: We'll be moving into completely new material, which is the investment process. The investment process begins when an entrepreneur requires capital, right? Very simple. Um, And so there are several different um, stages at which they're going to, you know, an investment might be made. Um, So obviously at startup, you know, most companies need some sort of uh, startup capital, whether that's, you know, from bootstrapping or from entrepreneur savings or from angel or VC investors. Um, So that's one stage. And then the next is at growth. So growth stage is basically considered once they like nail down their system for making money and they know that, you know, if they just pour more money into these sort of repeatable business processes that the company will grow. Um, and so it's relatively lower risk. And this is kind of where you see like late stage VCs, you know, private equity companies, you know, taking over then. And then similarly, um, Sometimes uh, a company will raise capital just for liquidity, right? So a lot of the companies that you see going public are actually raising capital for investor liquidity, um, or if a private equity comes, company comes in and wants to take sort of like a control position, um, very often in order to do that, they're buying out existing investors. So that's liquidity for founders, liquidity for existing investors. And then of course, you know, just a full-on acquisition um, is another stage, the last stage usually. In the investment process, different sources of capital, and we'll talk a little bit about the early stage because that's what we're here to talk about. Um, So, first of all, you've got personal funds, you've got friends and family, and it's actually pretty important that these things come in first. I see a lot of people who try to go out and, you know, raise venture capital uh, without being serial founders before they've used personal funds or even done a friends and family round. Um, And unfortunately, it's not great signaling um, because... While we get it that not everybody has, you know, wealthy friends and family that can necessarily invest in your company, it is really important for investors to know that the people around you that know you the best uh, believe in you enough to actually put their money on the line. So that's one element of signaling. The other element is that, you know, we know that there, that investment will sort of be the first money lost. Um, So you're probably gonna have to see these people, you know, at every Thanksgiving for the rest of your life, or, you know, every uh, school reunion. So we know that you've got like some real skin in the game as far as social capital, um, and that you're, you know, if you're willing to take money from people that you really love and care about, that you will probably respect the investor's money as well. Um, next is of course grants, which can come from institutions, funds, and nonprofits. Um, these are largely mostly available to you know healthcare tech, biotech companies. They're not usually available for you know your sort of run of the mill um, you know B two C tech startup. Um, but something that's a little bit kind of equivalent to it might be you know business plan competitions, etc. Some of these can actually like dole out significant money. Um, I'm actually a judge for several competitions, um, startup of the year, by the way, I just did an amazing podcast for startup of the year. So if you guys want to listen to that podcast you can really like it, um, they do an annual competition where I think they give out like about 50 grand, which is not bad. Um, and I'm pretty sure it's non-dilutive capital for that. Um, and then I'm also a judge for 43 North, which is like the largest cash prize business plan competition in the United States. Where well, we give out um, about eight million dollars in total prizes, or no, it's five million. So we give out a one million dollar top prize. Then I think the second one is seven fifty k, and we give out like five or six five hundred k prizes. So there are actually like some of these competitions, you can you know really get real money, um, and it's certainly less dilutive than the traditional fundraising route. Um, next is loans. So banks, SBA, those are really pretty difficult to get if you don't have an asset-based business and your business doesn't have revenue. And that's why most people have to go the venture capital route. Um, I do feel like at least here in New York City over the last you know year or so, there's been um, an increase in kind of like state and city related uh, sources of investment on a smaller scale, maybe like 50 to 100k, um, specifically for women. So I would definitely like, do your research to see, you know, what's available there. If you're looking at you know, that option for raising money because it it is becoming more of an issue. um, And I think that the government's trying to address it with increased access to capital for women. Um, And then lastly, we come to equity, right? Which is what we're here to talk about. Um, And so this is angel investors, venture capitalists, private equity firms, um, and where, you know, we play. Um, So the various investment rounds that are going to be made during the life of a company are really going to be covered by different types of entities, right? So when you're at pre-seed, you know, you're usually kind of, people are getting common, people are getting founder stock. Um, And this is usually where, you know, the founders are putting in their own money and maybe friends and family are putting in some money um, when you get to seed. And, you know, these the, this terminology has really been warped over the last five years um, because people just want to make themselves seem cooler than they are. Um, I'm just going to go with go with the original terminology. But right now, like a true seed round is kind of what used to be considered, you know, an A before. Um, so don't really pay attention to the termino- terminology on investment phase so much because that's whatever the company wants to say it is. It's a little bit more based on like the investment type. So. We would consider a seed round when you first kind of in raise money from professional investors or people that you don't know. And so in this round, you're likely to be using um, a safe, which is a simple agreement for, fu- for future equity. Um, if you ask me, that's actually the best security to use for this stage of investment. Um, you don't really need lawyers for it. Um, it. You know, you you can have a lawyer look at it. You know, certainly it, it's something that you're unfamiliar with, um, but he's not going to have to like draft something and charge you you know billions of dollars. That's why people really like it. Um, it was actually invented by Y Combinator, and you can download um, the docs off of their site. Uh, the next one is the Kiss, which is the Keep It Simple Security. Um, this was invented like right after Y Combinator did the safe by 500 startups, it's what they use. Um, it seems like safe is a little bit more dominant. I think it's just because like in the beginning, people thought that if they use safes, that people would think that they had been in Y Combinator even when they hadn't. So it's kind of funny. Um, and then the last is a convertible note. And so the safe and the kiss basically like replace the convertible note. The reason I would say don't use a convertible note um, or if you're an investor, like encourage the company not to do a convertible note is because the convertible note, though it is much simpler than preferred equity, is does get a lawyer's hands on it. And no offense if there's any lawyers on the call, but anytime a lawyer touches something, you know, it's really expensive and there's a good chance that it's going to get messed up. Um, so like I've had situations where I had a company do a convertible note, the lawyers just drafted like so much, you know, non boilerplate language. And then the note didn't actually like say what it needs to say, which is like a pretty simple thing, um, which is just that, Hey, we're investing this money, you know, um, if, if the the, the money can convert into equity, you know, at a certain valuation, um, and it's just you know at the investor's option whether or not they want to either get repaid plus their interest, or if they'd like to convert it into equity. It's like a pretty simple thing, um, but they you know they managed to turn this into like you know twenty pages of non plain English verbiage that didn't actually say what it needed to say, and it was a nightmare of time and error. So we really like to use the set the safe, maybe the kiss, but I don't recommend the convertible note, it's not my favorite. Um, And at this stage you're gonna see angel investors and seed funds investing in that type of security, um, usually in amounts of about one to three million. Uh, Next is your series A or B, which will be kind of like three to 25 million total raised. And at this point you're now investing in preferred equity Preferred equity in the startup world is not the same thing as preferred equity in the public markets. It's like a completely different thing. So um, preferred equity in public markets is more like a debt instrument, like preferred equity in the startup world really truly is an equity instrument. Um, Same thing with a convertible note, a convertible note. Uh, In the startup world, does not sort of have the same dynamics as public market convertible notes. Um, And it also is really basically an equity instrument. Um, You know, even though these things like kind of provide some downside protection, they're not secured by anything. So we would never really think of them, you know, as like true debt instruments that, that provide that kind of protection. And that's why even when Y Combinator replaced the convertible note, they called it a simple agreement for future equity because that more accurately accurately reflects what it actually is. Um, and so this is where you see true venture capital funds coming in for the series A and series B. That is like the sweet spot. That is where you want to be as an investor. That's where you're getting the best risk adjusted reward for your investment. So these companies are usually like pretty de-risked. Um, you usually have to be doing like at least 100k in monthly revenue to get a Series A done. Um, so by that point, you know, unless there's you know just complete problems of capital management, um, you know the company's fairly proven, right? They've established product market fit, they've established the revenue channels, like they're doing pretty well. And then by the time you get to like Series C, D, and beyond, you're still going to possibly be preferred mezzanine or debt is going to go on to the company and here's where you see private equity coming in here's where you see investment banks coming in and doing private placements for companies And you see maybe early investors and founders getting a little bit of liquidity, Um, and then lastly you would have public markets where you know companies doing an IPO and the traditional asset managers get involved. So those are all kind of like the stages, um, and it's really exciting and interesting. And why I think it's so great for you guys as female investors to be in in these early rounds, right? So you're not a venture capital fund; you can't really be in the sweet spot in the middle, right? Unless you've been in the seed. So where we do is we come in in the seed, you know, we are really selective. We, you know, try and make sure that we pick companies that get to the series A and B. And then once you get to that round, because you're an existing investor, you now have the opportunity to throw in some more money, you know, exercise your pro rata and take advantage of those like highly valuable series A and B rounds. Whereas, you know, right now, most people are like totally not not paying attention and then they're coming in, you know, at, at this last stage when it's in the public market, when basically all the value has been captured by the guys who are in early. So that's why we're here learning about this stuff. We start with screening of deals, due diligence, structuring a deal, company getting a term sheet, the first closing, then monitoring the investment and then exit. So sadly, you know, there's these like seven level bubbles, but really between, you know, bubble number five and bubble number seven, it's probably going to be like 10 years, you know? So it just, it takes a really long time. You're at, you know, you actually like, once you um, make an early stage investment, you know, if you're working with an organization like a thousand angels, you know, we're handling the monitoring, the investment for you. Um, but, you know, it's a long-term investment. Oh, hi, Erica. Another Erica on the line. I have a question for her. Are you seeing more price seed rounds issuing preferred equity? Uh, you know, you pretty much will not issue preferred equity until you're doing like a $3 million round. So in today's vernacular, a $3 million round is considered a series seed. Like, I think that, you know, so so people are kind of a little weird about the terminology because it's just optics. Um, so in these days, what I would consider seed and where you're going to see the first price round happen is usually when the company is doing a $3 million raise. And by that point, they have to get to at least 100 k So I wouldn't say that, like, I'm seeing more because we still, there there are, still lots of raises prior to that, that are done with safes. Um, but yeah, about 3 million is where people usually start with actual price amounts. I hope that answers your question. Um, so step one, sourcing and screening, You know, this is just like the work that you have to do of going out and you're welcome, Erica, that you have to do of going out, finding companies, having them pitched to you, and then like screening out the bad ones. Um, and you know, it's actually a lot of work, like this is what I do professionally. So I have to, you know, spend all my time doing it. Um, and it's a lot, it's a lot of like emotional investment, you know, um, one of the things that is so tricky about this job is that, you know, for me, like I always feel like, okay, if I meet with a company, I want to give them like really honest feedback and really good feedback, Um, but on the other hand, you know, you really have to realize like this is their baby, you know, and you can't say anything too negative about their baby. So like really being able to, um, you know, make that kind of like emotional connection when you're in the sourcing and screening, let everybody come away feeling good about themselves. It was a positive interaction. Um, it's a lot and you know, the, the honest truth is that I would say that I have to talk to like 99 companies for every one that is actually like something that we'll seriously consider investing in. So that's like a lot of, you know, interactions where you have to, you know, let people down really nicely. So, um, you know, it's, it's important if you want to be able to keep sourcing companies and screening companies that, you know, you treat every interaction with respect um, and with care and that they come away from the interaction having gotten something positive out of it, even if it wasn't a yes uh, from an investment perspective. So how do we go about actually getting these deals? So it's events, it's meetings, it's phone calls, it's things like this that I'm doing today. You know, member referrals, relationships with accelerators and incubators, relationships with seed and series ABCs. Um, You know, we get hundreds of applications actually now probably like each month, um, you know, and then we review the applications. And when we, you know, come across companies that we really like, we then enter them into due diligence. Now I would say that the vast majority of deals that we actually do, um, you know, usually come from some sort of a recommendation um, or an air warm introduction. Um, but we also absolutely accept like cold introductions too. you know, just because, somebody I know didn't introduce you to me, I still, you know, put just as much effort into at least taking a look um, at that opportunity. Next, we move on to the next process. So once you've, like, screened something, you think it's interesting, now you have to do due diligence. So due diligence is what we do to mitigate risk. You know, we don't just meet a company and go great," and hand over a check. We have to sort of really analyze, um, several different factors. Um, and really what we're trying to be aware of is business risk, people risk, and legal risk. And all of these are very important. Um, so on the people risk side, it's really management team. So like everything that you can do to like really get to know the management team is going to help mitigate that. You know, one of the things that I do for, my LPs and members of a thousand angels is that, you know, I have been a very successful investor because I invest a lot emotionally into the founders that I work with. So I have to know that like the founder that I'm investing in and that our group is investing in that they are somebody that we can trust that you know we know that they're going to do whatever they can possible to make this work and that they're not going to screw us over anyway right so like mitigating that people risk isn't you know it's not just like oh yeah do some you know background checks and some reference calls it's like you should really probably you know if it's you just individually investing in something or if you're with a group know that somebody is there who's really developing the relationship. And that's what VCs are for, right? Is that the fund manager, it's their responsibility to really get to know the founder and to spend a lot of time with the founder and to um, build trust with the founder, right? So that that person now will protect them as the company grows, protect their position. So it's very important. And then also just knowing people because you know, we've seen lots of companies and I'm not gonna name any names, but blow up because you know, founders were doing ridiculous stuff. right? So really think about you know, the management team, the trustworthiness of the people um, and how that can present a risk to the business. The next part, business risk, is probably like just what you're normally thinking about which is, you know, the market, the product, the financials, the marketing plan. Um, I'm a former banker. And so like, I always do a full audit of the company's financial model. I see so many people and even real investors who sometimes like, don't even look at a financial model. Like we've seen companies, you know, go out of business where they were like, "Oh, we." we ran out of money because nobody did a financial model, you know? So I would just behoove you to always make sure that like that box is checked because, you know, that's kind of like, you know, the doing your homework element of what is the future of this business and to really go through it and make sure that it actually makes sense and that there aren't any mistakes, um, so that's like one that I see a lot of people skipping. Um, we don't want to skip that. And then of course a marketing plan, right? So a lot of people like might have a great product, but they don't really know how they're going to sell it. Um, that's another thing that is really important is, you know, not just that the product is great, but how is it going to be sold? What are the distribution channels? You know, what are the marketing channels? All of these things. And then of course, legal risk, right? So what is the company's true intellectual property there are a lot of risks there. You know, you do the best that you can to mitigate them. You know, I have a really great portfolio company um, that was just targeted by a really terrible patent troll that's you know trying to extort her for like hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and you know had to deal with that. So it's always there, but in our diligence, we can do our best to mitigate it. And so the next thing that I really want to focus on is just efficiency in the diligence process. So number one, you know, you don't want to waste the company's time, right? And you, of course, don't want to waste your own time. So focus on like the biggest areas of concern first. Communicate regularly with the team, right? So if you see something that's a deal breaker, you know, be like, we saw this. And, you know, it's not working. Don't like see the deal breaker, keep going with the company. And then, you know, a month later be like, oh, well this thing that we learned, you know, four, mo- four weeks ago <laughs> is the deal breaker for us. So we really just want to be like very efficient and you know, it's okay to say no. As we said, 99 out of a hundred are going to get to know. Um, so once you see something that makes it a no, you know, communicate that right away. What sort of materials do you need to execute a diligence process on a company? So the primary diligence materials are of course the investor deck, the company's financial model, a marketing plan, um, which may not be like a separate document. Um, it might be something that is included in the investor deck and it's obviously something that is going to be uh, hopefully laid out in the financial model. Um, but if they have a separate one, that's great. Um, Next would be historical financials if the company has it. And then of course the company's cap table. So these are kind of the five things you actually wanna request um, to to start diligence on any company. Um, Additional diligence items would be like a client list, their sales pipeline report, Uh, Any material contracts, if it's a company that, you know, part of the valuation is based on contract or like another large company, Um, management reference checks, customer reference checks, if you can. And then if they do have patents pending or patents granted or any other sort of intellectual property, you can request um, evidence on that. We can see that there are some companies that didn't ask for that and, and didn't go in a great direction. Um, and then, of course, the next thing is to complete your independent research, right? So first, we look at the business model. Does it make sense? You know, can it make money? And most importantly, is it scalable? So scalability is key to making something actually investable. Next is the market opportunity. So has the company actually made reasonable assumptions? Is it really a billion dollar opportunity or are they overestimating the size of their addressable market? Uh, Third, the customers, does the company have a reasonable customer acquisition plan? Um, You know, is their cost of acquisition less, you know, than three times the customer lifetime value, and also like what is the sales cycle and how long is the sales cycle? So those are things that we want to make sure that we really fully understand before we invest. Um, On the financials, you know, does the financial model make sense? Are the assumptions and outcomes reasonable? And also is the plan scalable? Uh, You know, having been a managing director for Dream Adventures Accelerator for three cycles, One of the number one things that companies would sometimes learn when they built a financial model is that they had a great product, um, but it wasn't actually scalable within their customer base, right? So, like, let's say, you know, we had this one company that was making, like, some cool technology product for, like, developers, like some software development kit thing or whatever, and they wanted to sell it to developers. So, we said, okay, great, you know, how many developers are out there? Let's assume, you know, you get like 1% of them to look at your thing, you know, every month. And you sort of ran through all these assumptions. When we actually put it into the model, we realized, oh, there's like no business here, you know? So even though they kind of had a cool product and a cool, you know, addressable customer, um, when they actually ran through, like how would we actually acquire these people and sell this thing to them? And for how much they realized, wait, there's not enough of them. So, this is why, like, the financial model is so important because it's going to show you, you know, what the real drivers of value are in your business. Um, next is to make sure that you understand the competition. Um, so, understanding the company's value proposition versus competitors. And really, most importantly, also understanding if there are any substitutes in the market or if you know, there are some new technology innovations that might actually eliminate um, the need for what your company is doing. So like really being aware of that, um, you know, I think that if you sort of looked at what happened within the meal kit business, um, you know, that was a little bit of a nightmare where, there were just like no barriers to entry and everything got flooded and created really bad dynamics. Um, so really kind of thinking about, okay, what are, you know, what are the competitive dynamics of this particular industry and for this particular company? And then of course, the management team really get to know them. Do you trust these people with your money? Um, and you know, reference checks, background checks, all those kind of things for independent research. Um, So, next, we talk a little bit about structuring the deal. So, determining valuation. Now, you're probably not going to be structuring the deal, but we're going to talk about what is involved. So, number one, it's always a negotiation. There is no hard and fast rule, there's no 409A, there's no like, you know, accounting stuff. It's completely a negotiation. Um, So, Part of that is going to be based on what's already going on in their cap table, right? So, you know, how many founders are there, how much money, you know, needs to be taken in in the future. Um, really just kind of like coming to a right number. You know, there is no perfect number, but from experience, you can sort of get a sense of where you think a company should trade. Most importantly, since we're coming in at the seed, we need to realize that a company is likely to do a seed round an A round, a B round, and maybe a C round. And so we need to see what is the value the value evolution there. Um, for a company to be doing really great, the valuation should double between rounds. So, you know, if you're doing a pre-seed round at a $5 million cap, that means that the A should probably get done or the seed should probably get done at a valuation of around 10 million, which is an appropriate valuation for a company raising $3 million. And that means that the A, you know, should probably get done at a valuation somewhere around like 25 million pre and the B would be somewhere around like 50 to 75, um, you know, and then whatever. So it's kind of like you have to, you have to look at the company's projected growth trajectory and think, you know, can they sort of double this between rounds? It's not a hundred percent requirement, but that's kind of what you need to do to keep um, investors happy. So, we're going to talk a little bit about valuation methodology and then also just sort of like things you can do to meet the investor's needs. So, the methods differ by investor type, stage investment, and availability of capital. If you guys are finance people, and I'm thinking maybe some of you might be, um, we learn in business school, you know, discounted cash flows, right? So, That does not work here because we don't even have any idea of what the cash flows of the company are going to be. So like, you just cannot really apply a traditional discounted future cash flows method to early stage investing. Um, We do a few other methods. So for seed, there's sort of like some ridiculous methods. Um, One is the rule of thirds. It's like so old school, I'm not even going to worry about it. Second is just deferred valuation. And that's basically what these like saves or, you know, uh, convertible notes do is they kind of like establish a ballpark, like a maximum for the valuation, but they do allow you to defer into the future. And then at series a, which is kind of like where we're really looking at, you know, coming up with valuations, we use what's called the venture capital method, which I'll get into as well as benchmarks, which is kind of like where are other comparable companies in the industry trading um, at the growth stage, you know, you're going to use multiples of revenue or multiples of EBITDA. It's that type of company. Um, you're going to, the growth stage equity companies are going to be maybe thinking about like what's the valuation based on the percentage of equity that they need to acquire. Usually it's like a little bit over 50% if they want to get control. And then, you know, at private, equity stage, and public markets, you're now getting into the more traditional valuation methodologies of discounted future cash flows, net present value of that, value of their assets, PE ratios, things like that. So these all kind of like evolve and fluctuate, but I think it's really important for people to understand that at the early stage, you just do not use the same valuation methodologies that you do at the later stages, which most people are more familiar with. Um, So the next thing that's really important to understand in terms of terminology is like pre-money versus post-money valuation. So we always talk about companies in terms of their pre-money valuation. And that's just the value that's ascribed to the company before the money goes in. So if an early stage company is raising a million dollars and their pre-money valuation is three million dollars, and they take in exactly 1 million of new money, the post-money valuation is just three plus one equals four, and the new money investors now own 25% of the company. So it's a pretty simple equation, but it's really important to remember that like, we don't talk about valuations in terms of post-money. The reason is because we don't usually know exactly how much is gonna get go in. Um, so mostly it's done at pre-money. The only time I would say that that changes is for some reason, like sometimes at series B rounds, I'll very often see the rounds be talked about in post-money valuation. Don't know why, but usually when someone's doing a series B, they'll be like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to take between 15 and 20 million and it'll be a post-money of a hundred kind of a random thing. But, you know, when you're coming in at seed and series A stage, we almost always talk about the money, the, the valuation in terms of pre-money. Um, so possible valuations for a seed round, um, you know, there's this ridiculous thing called the Berkus method, which Nate Berkus invented. It's just kind of like eyeballing it. You know, he, he put this $500,000 on one of each of these categories a long time ago, I think now you'd probably have to, because of inflation, you'd probably have to say a million, but he would say, okay, you know, if you have a great idea, you know, that's a million. If you have the prototype, that's another million. If you have a great management team, that's another million. If you have strategic relationships and a product rollout or sales, that's another million. So he's kind of just like abstractly saying, you know, do you meet these categories at another million? And so let's say, you know, the maximum would, now be 5 million. Right. So that's sort of like one method that's very arbitrary, but also kind of makes sense because basically in a very early stage round, the valuation is almost always probably going to be like between, you know, it could be three if you're, you know, I don't know, you're like in, you know, Detroit or Cincinnati or somewhere else where you know prices are just generally low. Um, but it's definitely going to be between three and five million. If you're a, a serial founder, it could probably go as high as seven. But the truth is like the range is pretty low. Um, so it does matter to do it you know to do it properly. You know, so for example, if I invest in a company at a $3 million valuation and the company's eventually sold for, you know, $30 million, I'm going to get 10X. But if I had paid a $5 million valuation, I'm only going to get 6X. So it actually like is very material on the back end. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, like the actual sort of range of valuations is like fairly narrow. Um, and so... Next thing is obviously deferred valuation, which you're almost always going to have implicitly in these um, instruments because the way that they work is that there is a valuation cap and then it says you will convert either at a certain discount to the next round, it's usually 20%, or at a valuation cap. So the cap sort of establishes the highest price you're gonna pay for your equity and then the discount gives you the optionality just in case the next round happens at a lower price than you expect. So the method that we really use for establishing valuation is the venture capital method. And so what you wanna do is you wanna think about the terminal that value at the sale of the company estimated on a multiple of sales or EBITDA. We almost always use a multiple of sales because EBITDA is just like less relevant. Um, but the way that we do this, and this is like kind of the real way that we do it, it's very back of the napkin, is if I think that at year five, you know, the company is going to be doing a hundred million in annual revenue and I think that, you know, the company will be able to trade at like three times revenue at year five. That means that in, at year five, I think the company is going to be worth about $300 million. Okay. So if the company is going to be worth $300 million at year five, and I need to, you know, I'm, I'm an early stage investor. I need to get a 30 X return on my investment. That means that the post-money valuation of the current round, assuming this is like the only capital it needs to raise between now and year five needs to be 10 million. So if the company say needs to raise, you know. $2 million right now, the appropriate valuation is $8 million. So that's how really venture capital people truly like ascribe these valuations. Um, And it can make sense. And it, you know, it kind of works because the amount of equity that should be raised on any particular round is generally between 20 and 33%. Um, So if a company is, you know, trying to raise more than that percentage of equity in any one round, they've not really got appropriate capital strategy. Um, So the other thing to note is that, you know, this is also sort of based on you needing to achieve, you know, an IRR of like at least sort of 56%. And those things like seem really high, but they have to be high for individual companies because some of these companies are not going to you know make it they're not gonna make their actual return so the IRR, that you actually have to demand on each individual company is pretty high comparatively. So this chart here shows you some general valuation guidelines. Um, you know we would say that a pre-seed round is kind of 250K to a million valuations are usually like two and a half on like the very low end like that's the lowest I've ever paid for a seed round valuation to about five million. Um, Like I said, there could be a little bit of a premium if it's like a celebrity founder, um, but that's the general range. And this is like friends and family, accelerators, early angels. These companies are usually kind of pre-revenue. You know, a traditional seed round, which would also probably be done um, as a safe, would be kind of one to three million dollars valuations ranging from like four to $12 million. And this is where you're gonna see like angels, micro VCs, seed VCs, et etc. And it's kind of like everything up to that 100K in monthly recurring revenue benchmark that the real VCs are looking for. So once you get there, you're you're probably doing like a traditional Series A and some people might call it Series C. So, you know, don't look at the the name, just look at the amount that's being raised. So for a three to $10 million raise of preferred equity from VCs, you're probably gonna get a valuation of like 12 to $30 million. And at this point, you need to be doing over, usually 100K in monthly recurring revenue a series b is typically for raises of 10 to 25 million with valuations of like 30 to 100 million and this is also vcs and by this point you usually have like 3 million plus in annual revenue and then series c is kind of like 25 million and above valuations of 75 million and above and here's where you see more growth stage vcs and companies with like sort of 10 million plus arr so the way you kind of think about it is like you know In a pre-seed round, companies probably raising maybe like 500K, 750K. In the seed round, you know, it's maybe like 1.5 million. Then they're raising a series A of maybe like, you know, 3 million. And then the series B is like 10. And then series C is like 25. That's like a very normal sort of fundraising path for a reasonably capitalized startup. Um, The less they need to, to raise, obviously, like the better for you. Um, but you have to like really sort of be aware that you're going to need to sort of like hit these different, you're going to be able to have to like sustain, uh, these valuations as the company grows. Um, this chart is kind of interesting. It just sort of gives you an idea of like valuations versus traction and what can like make valuations more expensive. Things like previously successful founders, valuable intellectual property, coming out of Silicon Valley or Y Combinator, you know, those things are going to add, make things more expensive. And what things are going to make things like nice and cheap and cheap is good for the investor, right? Because that means like you're getting a good deal. So if they're not from the Bay Area, you know, or NYC, if they're from like, cincinnati or detroit or austin you might get a little bit better deal if there's female or minority founders you're probably going to get a better deal on it it's just like the way our uh, country our our system is unfortunately set up um and if they're consumer products companies they're probably also going to be a little bit cheaper so this is to kind of give you an idea of where your valuation lands from kind of like idea stage through product market fit to approaching growth um Next, we talk a little bit about the term sheet and some of the different securities that are available. So we have the convertible note and safe, which are essentially loans that convert into the next price round of equity. They should always have a valuation cap. They will convert at a discount to the next round. And there are sort of different events that trigger conversion. So it sort of allows you to defer valuation issues, but always get a valuation cap. So this is sort of the most common security use there. As I said, I feel more comfortable with the safe, but convertible notes happen too. Um, And then at the seed stage, you have participating preferred equity or just preferred equity. Um, So the preferred part means that you're going to receive a return of capital and dividends prior to any distributions to the holders of common shares. So it just sort of recognizes the fact that you put in cash money and you deserve to get that out before anyone gets anything. The participating part, I haven't seen that happen in probably like six years. It's something that if we got into a capital constrained environment might come back. But what that just means is that after the preferred distribution, you then also convert into common. Well, I'm not going to go into that too much because it's honestly like a really investor friendly thing, but I haven't seen it happen recently. So we can talk about it in another session. Um, and then of course, your liquidation preference, which just means that you're going to receive X times your capital before distributions are made to common shareholders. So if you have a liquidation preference, it's usually one time. If it was like two times, it would mean that you need to get back two times your initial capital invested investment before common shareholders get anything and this is why we always want to be preferred you never want to be in common you need to invest in a c-corp not an llc and you need to never invest in common so that's just the world
0: thanks for joining me today to listen to the third act podcast you can find show notes guest bios and more at thirdactpodcast.com If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.